Welcome to episode 55 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and by our show creator, Shane. Like you, we go out under the stars for the love of it and sharing these experiences of the night sky with you, the listener, is one reason why we do this podcast. The other reason is all the pubs were closed for the pandemic back in March and this was the next best thing. <laughs> yeah, we're saving money and calories doing it. That's right. That's right. But yeah, I mean, usually we would try to go out for a beer every once in a while and, and have a astronomical chat. And then, uh, you know, a pandemic hit and we've been talking about starting up the podcast again. So we've just kind of kept rolling with it. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Did I tell you? So we had Kathleen on last week mm-hmm. for this uh, podcast. And uh, she mentioned during that podcast that she had had a pair of binoculars stolen from her car in the past. Do you remember her telling us that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bad luck struck again. She had all of her two-inch eyepieces, but not her one-and-a-quarter-inch eyepieces, stolen from her home the next day. <laughs> yeah, she's had a rough streak. <laughs> so I thought that was, uh, that was a little bit weird. Um, anyway, so we actually met this. We, we met virtually, but we met outside of the recording time and chatted with the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Talk a little bit about how we want to, uh, I don't know, not really change it, but just keep it going with some new ideas and uh, uh, keep keep it interesting. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's only the second time that we've done so. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the first time was like before we recorded an episode. (laughs) Back in March. So this was our second meeting outside of the recording time on this podcast. The rest of the time, we're like, hey, people are listening to it. I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's just keep shooting from the hip. <laughs> How's it going for you? Pretty good. And then we just start talking about what we're observing or gear or something, which is exactly what we record anyway. And then when we start these, like when we started today, we start chatting and we're like, well, we might as well just record it because there's virtually nothing different about our conversation that we record here other than the welcome and the thank you for listening. The rest is pretty much, pretty much the same conversation that we'd have anyway with a little bit of annotation for the listeners. And that's it. That's what you get. You are right. Yes. Yes. In fact, you know, I think some of our conversations even uh, like have replaced the conversations that we have when we've observed uh, together, you know, during non-pandemic times, which we, we really haven't been able to get together too much this year, but we're still observing and, and talking about it, which that would just happen all in one session. But now yeah. we, you know, we, we observe at night and talk about it on Sunday. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's kind of strange. So I think it, it's very easy because we don't have to uh, edit. These are essentially unedited, though. I think I think in the last one we have to do an edit because we lost audio for for a few minutes. Um, but other than that, I, I think for the most part these are completely unedited. So you're just getting our raw conversation, um, and it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have too. Um, and we'll keep doing uh, keep doing it. Um, I think our only concern about the future is it gets kind of cold here in the winter time. So we'll have to see how much content we have if we're not observing as much, but we will figure that out when we need to, if we need to. Yeah. And you had a, had a pretty good idea uh, sort of based on our conversation with, uh, with Kathleen 
Um, and that is to maybe uh, in, invite some more people on and, and do a few more interviews during, during those months. And, uh, you know, we certainly have lots of contacts in the, in the astronomy community and people who, uh, who we know are, are typically very generous with, uh, with their time and such. So, you know, I, I think we'll be able to uh, make time and meet. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we put about, uh, I think on average, maybe like between the recordings and everything I was estimating, we put somewhere between six and 12 hours into this a week or something like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, probably... that's, that's kind of what, uh, what I was thinking. So not counting the, the astronomy, the actual astronomy that we do, but, uh, uh, you know, usually I put about an hour or two into making up the show notes and you're getting them together and putting the drops together. And then, Sometimes we have to send out the odd email on that to get uh, to get them out onto like uh, 365 days of astronomy or or hooked into another feed or just that that kind of stuff. Um, but our costs aren't too much uh, for the show, and uh, you've been kind of footing the bill so far. I think I'm going to foot the bill for next year. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> but you uh, you also sacrificed a MacBook to our cause. <laughs> Well, that might have been the wine club my wife and I have joined. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, it happened. It, well, no, like nothing bad, but we were, so this wine club we just joined, you you get a couple bottles of wine, you log on uh, via Zoom, and there, you know, all of the other participants are there. And then the, uh, I guess the, like kind of the leads of the wine club will talk about the wine we're tasting. And then, you know, we go around and taste and share notes Anyway, it was during this Zoom session that my MacBook uh, released the magic smoke and stopped working. <laughs> so, so it's gone for good. Um, oh, but, that's too bad. Well, it, it's, yeah. But, you know, the good thing is uh, I'm going to simplify my life. And instead of having a phone, a tablet, uh, you know, a laptop, I'm just not replacing the laptop. I will yeah. make do with less devices. You're going to do everything from your... Uh... Uh, iPod shuffle. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. From and, uh, 2007. <laughs> yeah, rub, rub some sticks together and hope for the best. <laughs> Good stuff. We also chatted about, um, you know, some merchandise that might be available. You've, you've set up a bit of a merch store. Is, is that ready to release? Not yet. I still have to do okay. a little bit of work. Um, so what we're going to do is, um, you know, some some podcasts set up Patreons and stuff like that. Um, what we're going to do is just set up a little merch site. And if you want to, if you want to support the podcast financially, you can buy like a shirt or a cup or a hoodie. Uh, so you get something and then we get a small portion of that too coming our way just to help cover some of the costs of the, the hosting and things like that. Um, yeah. we have, not we have day jobs. So we, we really, we really don't need that great of a, of a finance stream on this. We're, we're happy to do it, but we're just trying to cover our, cover our costs pretty much, which are pretty minimal. I think, yeah, I think if 10 people bought a t-shirt, we could probably cover our costs. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe if 30 or 40 bought t-shirts, we could think about early retirement. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. A joke. That's a joke. <laughs> coffee mugs. It's all about the coffee mugs. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and we're getting about like this is our fifty-fifth episode, and I was looking at our um, downloads for September. Now you have all the fancy statistical 
you know, Kurt blah, 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 blah. But uh, I was just looking at what comes up in, in my feed and uh, it looks like we averaged approximately so far 150 downloads um, for the, for the episodes in September. So uh, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it just keeps growing, actually. Like we are now consistently about 800 listens per week. Um, so thank you, everybody. We really appreciate that. Yeah. And I looked it up and it turns out that about 150 downloads of, of a podcast in the first 30 days, and we've, we've done that now on average for the past uh, month or so, um, that's sort of the average. So welcome to mediocrity. Hey, that's, that's my lifelong goal. I've never <laughs> been so happy about being average. <laughs> yep, perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, you, we've been actually hearing from people, which, which is both fun and surprising. So, uh, you know, and the neat part is, is that everybody that we've heard from, it's all been like really fun and positive and good conversations and whatever. So you know, it's really, it's really great that it's like a positive community where people are just having fun and enjoying the night sky and, you know, sending us questions. Um, and then you're, you're sending out some answers, but you thought you would compile together uh, a set of questions here from, uh, from listeners. And uh, yeah, maybe we can chat about those. Yeah. So again, thanks to everybody for listening, but also thank you to the folks that have sent us some feedback um, and a number of these folks have asked us some questions uh, along the way. Um, so I've tried to respond to those as best I can. Um, but, you know, these questions are really good, I think. And hmm. um, really good in that I think other folks would get some value out of, you know, hearing the discussion that you and I might have or, um, you know, our responses, essentially. Okay. So, you know, I thought we could do a mailbag episode, which is mailbag. And yes. I feel like know, there should be some sort of astronomical equivalent of a mailbag. And uh, I was thinking, you know, in, in visual astronomy, there's, there's two dark nebulas. We have the Northern coal sack and the Southern coal sack. And like, I think of a sack as something Santa Claus and like getting questions from listeners is kind of like a present. So maybe we'll call these a coal sack of, <laughs> of mail. <laughs> I'm just yeah, riffing. A bit, I don't bit, know. bit of a stretch here. <laughs> okay. To, all right. Trying to follow the, the lines. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I'll, I'll give up on that. Shane, you're the one who actually makes up the, the titles and uh, the odd time I've made up a title, it has not done that well. So, uh, Oh no, we'll, you've had a couple winners. You've had a couple. We'll, we'll leave those up to you. Um, <laughs> why don't I read the question and then you can start with the answer. Cause I think you've answered these all. And then, then maybe we can, we can discuss a little bit further. How does that sound? Yeah. And, um, you know, I guess the real test will be seeing if my verbal answer matches my written answer because <laughs> yeah, I don't have the written answer in front of me. We don't, we don't really operate like that. This is not, this is not scripted. Really, it's not. Um, we have notes, but they're very note-like spelling, grammar errors, broken sentences, bullet points. That's what we got here today. So the first question is from a listener. I started with a small refractor, an entry-level telescope, and I now have aperture fever. So what is aperture fever, Shane, first? What is well, aperture fever? 
I think everybody can relate or understand gold fever. You know, I was going to say, is this something people now have to worry about on top of the coronavirus? The answer is <laughs> no. <laughs> so, some people do, I suppose, uh, but yeah. only from a financial standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, aperture fever in astronomy is bigger is better. And you know, if you read any books about uh, observing in telescopes, um, really what, what, more aperture does for you is allow you to see fainter objects. Um, and then some of the brighter objects are even brighter with greater detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, a, you know, a 20 inch Dobsonian, uh, I've looked through, uh, or I've, I've viewed the Veil Nebula through a 20 inch Dobsonian and it's an incredible feat or an incredible experience um, seeing like the, the twists and turns and all of the, the unique structure within that, that nebula. Mm-hmm. Um, if I look at that through my 60 millimeter, you know, two inch telescope, it's a very different view. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the, there's pros and cons about going bigger, but anyway, aperture fever is a real thing in astronomy. <laughs> and, and I once had it, in fact, where I started with an eight inch uh, Dobsonian. That was my first real telescope. And then uh, I moved to a 12 inch Dobsonian because I wanted more light gathering power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so as far as aperture goes, like I'm going to kind of define what a small telescope is here and a medium sized and, and, a, and a large telescope. So, so to me anyway, um, because uh, the different types of telescopes mean uh, that the aperture is, is bigger to haul around, um, for a refractor, I'm going to say that the small refractor is telescopes uh, three inches or under, although some of the some of the three inch telescopes can be can be pretty large, uh, but once you get up into like three and a half or four inches, really um, the refractor becomes uh, something to haul around. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to say that sort of in that medium range is is the uh, say around four inches or maybe just uh, even a three and a half to a four inch telescope in the refractor is getting big. And once you get much over five inches, like up to like I have a five inch refractor and it's big, but it's not, it's not unwieldy, but it's getting big. Six inch refractors are big instruments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and, 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 you know, just to clarify too, like, so when you go from a three inch to a, a four inch uh, refractor, uh, one inch doesn't sound like that much of a difference, but you really have to think of it as surface area. Yeah. And going up that much, I did the calculation. It's like you're gaining, I think, close to 70% surface area going from my 76 millimeter to your 100 millimeter. It's, a, yeah. it's an extreme uh, jump in terms of uh, size. Yeah. And, you know, like I have the 60, the difference between the 60 and the 76 isn't really that, that much. So, so really, I, I think like in the 75 millimeter range for a refractor, that's the ideal range for a small instrument because um, they're pretty small. Um, going smaller than about 75 millimeters is, uh, you know, you're not really gaining much in portability. Um, but going up to 75 from a 60, like when I go from my 60 to your 76, it, it's a really big jump. Um, I don't think the jump is nearly as, as big going from the 76 to the 100 but you really see it like that hundred millimeter is like almost like three times the size of your 76. Like it is, it is a much larger telescope and it's just on the, on the small side of a medium sized refractor. 
Now with the uh, Schmidt-Cassegrains or compound instruments, I'm going to say that that uh, the small ones are really they really started about three and a half or four inches. Um, I, I think there are some maybe that are smaller, but typically you're looking at around three and a half or four inches where the compound telescopes uh, are, you know, that, that's sort of the smallest of the line. Um, and up to about five inches, they're pretty portable, small, light, portable, weigh like five or six pounds. Once you get to about six inches, like some of the smaller six inches, that's going to be like medium sized or so some of the lighter eight inch would be like a medium sized but some of the heavier eight inches and up that's where you're getting into uh like a larger instrument that's why like sometimes you'll see people just go right to like the 10 inch smith green because the difference isn't isn't that much and even a an 11 or 12 inch isn't that much larger than than an eight or a nine inch smith green they're all about you know the same size and weight um it's just not an appreciable uh, difference. So with the reflectors though, on the Dobsonian mount or reflectors in general, you see lots of say four, five inch is really common for small beginner reflectors. And that's a very small and light portable telescope. Even six inch uh, reflectors can be, can be pretty small and portable. Eh? For sure. In fact, one of our uh, listeners that sent us some emails, Phil from the UK has a, um, I think it's a Celestron first scope, which is like yeah. uh, just a tiny little Dobsonian um, that is so portable. Like it's so like, it's really a tabletop telescope that he's been having a lot of success with. And yeah, um, yeah you can get some real portable Dobbs. Yeah. And uh, six inch, even a six inch Dobsonian mounted uh, reflector is still uh, quite portable but uh, once you get to eight inch, they're starting to get pretty big in size. And, you know, again, eight, 10, and some of the 12s, that's like a medium sized uh, range reflector. And then really once you get to 13, 14 inches, you've got a pretty big instrument on your hands. Uh, I think anyway, a pretty hefty, hefty yeah. telescope. So, um, you know, so really for, for the Dobbs, um, and the Dobsonians are really most popular in that eight to 12 inch range. Um, and that's, that's really uh, the most affordable avenue to go if you're, if you're looking to increase the size. Now, sort of the, the big rider on all this, and it, it's sort of that old, uh, not everything is, is equal and even, eh? Like, um, you know, what, what's the difference between say a medium sized four inch refractor and uh, you know the the smallest medium sized reflector being eight inch in the Dobsonian size, and say a six inch uh, Schmidt Cassegrain. What do you think, Shane? What 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 would be your trade offs there amongst those three instruments? Well, if somebody's so looking the, to upgrade. Yeah, with the Cassegrain and the Newtonian, you have that central mirror or central obstruction. Um, which sort of takes away from the aperture a little bit. Like that central obstruction, depending on which one you're going with, is probably around the 20% mark. So even though it says eight inches of aperture, that obstruction is taking 20% of that away to a certain degree. Um, and you typically lose a little bit of contrast. So if you really like, you know, very tight, sharp images, um, the refractor usually does a better job with those, um, mm -hmm. because of that, because there's no central obstruction. So, yeah. um, that's the main, the main benefit, I suppose. 
Um, so like a, you'll, you'll often hear that like a five inch refractor will probably give you the same views as an eight inch Newtonian roughly, yep. you know, yep. because of the, the lack of a central obstruction. Um, and the cool down, like as well, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the, uh, the reflector though it's open um, does have a lot more mass to it. Like they're heavier instruments. So all that has to cool down one way or another. And uh, the refractor, even though it's closed, like the, uh, like the compound instrument, there's not as much mass to it. And you're only looking at the light go passing through that uh, column of air once. So you're not, uh, you're not compounding the bad seeing maybe that, that's inside the telescope either. Right? I'm not sure if you ever thought about that or not, but when you have an instrument where the light is reflecting back and forth, especially with the compound where it goes in, up, and back, um, it's really cutting through that three different times. Uh, you are, you're cutting through that column of air in the instrument many times, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've had uh, a five-inch Maksudov twice, and I've not kept <laughs> either for very long because yeah. it just never really, at least yeah. here I found it didn't really acclimatize very well. Uh, no. At least not to my liking. Yeah, and that's, that's sort of, uh, yeah. so the listener had asked, what should I be aware of if I go to an eight to 12 inch Dobsonian? Um, did they mention what telescope they were coming from? They're a small refractor, but they say what size? I can't remember. I'd have to go look through the emails. That's okay. Um, I think it was like a, like a like 60, 60 millimeter, yeah. you know, okay. focal length 700, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I think the seeing... See, you're, you really learn what seeing is when you go to the bigger instruments. And you really, like, for example, I had larger instruments. I never owned a 60 and then I bought one because I wanted like an ultimately portable instrument. And I learned how much a larger instrument is impacted by seeing when I went to the smaller one. Oh, that's um, a great point. Yeah. And uh, so oftentimes people think, oh, there's something wrong with me or the way that you know, something I don't understand, but really it's, it's the seeing conditions that you have to deal with. And they just compound and get worse, the larger uh, the instrument that you have. Um, and I actually think the largest thing for somebody to be aware of is the size and weight. And I'll just briefly tell that story that I love to tell where I, uh, I lived somewhere where there was no telescope stores. I, I grew up sort of a more rural and, and remote area in Eastern Canada. And I drove to the States, which really wasn't that far. It was like an eight or nine hour drive. So I drove down to New Hampshire um, and I thought there's this great telescope store there. It has good reviews. So I'm going to go to this place and uh, go in. Everybody's really friendly lots of great stuff in there. And I buy um, an eight or a 10 inch telescope. I forget which. And before we bring it in, the guy's like, wait a second, is it going to fit in your vehicle? And I'm like, oh, sure, it will fit. Sure, it will fit. He goes, mm, I don't know. So we took it out. Nope wouldn't fit in the car. So mm -hmm. I didn't get mm -hmm. my telescope because it simply did not fit in the vehicle. I couldn't believe it. We could not get the telescope inside the car physically. I was just shocked that it, it wouldn't go in. So be aware, like measure your vehicle and make sure that, that it will actually fit in the current vehicle uh, that you own. Because um, choosing a different telescope may be a lot less expensive than buying a new car. <laughs> I didn't know in the car. I was in I was in college, so it was my mother's car, right? It wasn't oh, yes. wasn't a big deal, but uh, eventually I did buy an eight inch Dob, and uh, and I learned very quickly that I did not transport that vehicle in a car. I had to uh, borrow uh, my father's SUV or truck or whatever he had at that time. 
Yeah, and it's not just the tube, uh, say for an eight inch that that's difficult. In fact, that's probably the easiest part to transport. It's, it's that really base. the Dawsonian base. Oh, it's yeah, it's, it's very sized, very yeah. large. Like they're tall. Yeah. And like the base, like the big round base, is is quite uh, like the diameter is quite big. So, yeah, you definitely have to make sure you can fit it in the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, if you go 10 to 12 inch daub, you really should think about like a truss design so that like the upper, yeah. you know, like it basically breaks up into three parts and then it makes that a lot more manageable. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll just kind of continue down some of the, some of the negative aspects of a bigger daub. Um, so you yeah, a, you talk, oh, you got to assemble that and then you got to optically align it. <laughs> yeah. The collimation, you have to collimate it every time. Now, that's the alignment. Is, yeah. 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 That's not a difficult process, but it's another tool that you have to take out with you. Um, and like when I had my eight inch solid tube, it held the alignment or the collimation fairly well. It was minimal adjustments, but my truss telescope was a real pain. Like I really, sometimes the collimation just in transit and putting it all back together was way off. So I'd spend some time getting the alignment done. And then because there's all of these components that attach to each other, I found that on some nights where uh, there was a lot of cooling, you know, the, the metal compounds uh, contract a little bit Yeah. and the telescope would just shift enough. And like, I'm, maybe I'm too much of a perfectionist with my views uh, through a telescope but I want it to be as crisp and as clear as possible. And, mm -hmm. you know, with that cooling and shifting of the trusses and everything, I would often have to recollimate uh, a couple hours into my observing session to get everything perfectly lined up again, mm -hmm. which was a pain. I didn't enjoy that. Um, yeah. You talked about the weight, you know, like these things can weigh a lot. They take up a lot of space to store. And then another factor that I didn't appreciate, especially about my 12 inch is that like, if you're, if you're storing that telescope indoors, that mirror will get to the same temperature as your house. So, you know, the 20 degrees uh, Celsius is probably around most people's households. Well, if you take that out to observe um, and it's say 10 degrees cooler, you need that mirror to reach the same temperature as the outside air or else it's just not going to give you very nice views. Um, and it can take easily an hour or more for that big chunk of glass to cool down. Um, and then, you know, that the, 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 the air just cools the whole night through. So the daub is always trying to catch up to that. And it just takes a lot longer to cool uh, because of how large it is. And, and some daubs have mirrors on, or sorry, um, um, fans on the back of the mirror that help accelerate this cooling. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still a factor to consider. So, um, those are probably the major cons or, or you know, considerations. Um, now, the thing that I love about them is you just, you can't beat a Dubsonian base. Like they're so solid. Like when I had mm -hmm. my 12 inch, I could observe on windy nights and there was no vibration. Um, yeah. I would have to lock the telescope down a little bit so it didn't sway because it's like a big kite in the wind. But it's such a stable mount. It's so easy to use. Mm -hmm. um, and truly, you know, the views of, say, M13 through a 12-inch uh, Dobsonian or the spiral arms so clearly defined um, in M57. Am I thinking of the right one? Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, sorry, I think you're thinking of 51, 57. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, 51. Sorry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the views are just amazing through a large aperture telescope. Um, and, and like an eight to 12 inch daub, 
gee, you know, that's, that'll give you a lifetime of objects to observe. Uh, yeah. So they, they're incredible performers, yep. uh, but you have to take all that other stuff into consideration. And really at the end of the day, uh, the best telescope is the one you use the most. And sometimes, not for everybody, but sometimes a larger telescope means you use it less because it's a, mm -hmm. it's more of a pain to, to set up. Like now my favorite telescope is a 76 millimeter or a three inch uh, refractor that with one hand, like it's all set up by my back door on a tripod, you know, one hand, I can just take it outside and I'm observing. Um, yeah. That I love. Yeah. And even though I have the 60 and the hundred millimeter uh, Takahashi's, I still use the 60 quite a bit because it's just so small, light, portable. I can grab it and all my eyepieces and my mount and go out and set up and observe um, easier than I, than I can just mount the 100 millimeter. <laughs> it, yeah, it's exactly. the 100 millimeter is more, more of a commitment. Although I got to say the 100 does, they did a good job and it does cool exceptionally fast, but it's, it's more difficult to, you, you got to think about setting it up. You got to pause and, you know, think about it for a second. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Let's see. just one other quick point yeah. about that eight inch price per inch of aperture. You just can't beat it. You know that yeah. if you want to get into astronomy and you want good aperture, uh, you know, you can find a eight inch brand new, probably for around 600 Canadian dollars. Mm -hmm. And it's not uncommon to find used ones for half of that. Um, mm -hmm. if you're, if you're patient and uh, you know, that is just incredible value. Yeah, I think I would definitely recommend going going the used route from like a known observer on cloudy nights or on uh, Astromark. That would be uh, or Astrobuy sell here in Canada as well. That would be my my recommendation. All right. So next question. I recently upgraded to an eight inch Dob. That was my first telescope, and I had my first view of Mars. All I could see was a red disc, no detail. From everything I've heard, seeing planetary detail and the polar cap shouldn't be a problem at all. Would a moon filter work to cut down the light? Should I get a Mars filter or a red filter or should I use filters at all? Maybe. Yeah. Thoughts? All, all good questions and all, all very good. timely. Yeah. yeah. Um, where to start with this? Um, so one of the things I've noticed with Mars, and this goes really for uh, Jupiter as well. I think there can be too much aperture to look at these sometimes because, you know, these big mirrors pull in so much light mm -hmm. that sometimes it just overwhelms the ability to see that surface detail. Um, like it just washes it out. So some people will um, mask down the aperture, you know, like mm -hmm. put, a, put like a cap on the end that only allows, you know, a certain amount of light through um, mm -hmm. that, you know, requires a little bit of creativity. Mm -hmm. um, some filters may work with that too. Like if you just get a, a neutral density filter, um, they that, really, that would be uh, like, that would be a moon filter of sorts, like a number 25 yes. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they really act as like sunglasses essentially for your telescope. They don't really yeah. change the color, but they do reduce the light coming through. Yeah. Uh, so that can help. Um, you know, can I hop in and make a recommendation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. I go really go. think that with the eight inch, get the Celestron Mars filter. It's inexpensive. I think, I forget how much they are. Maybe they're like $50 American. I don't know. If you can hunt one down, buy a Mars filter from the Celestron pack. It is excellent. It's been my favorite filter for observing Mars. It's really come in well now that Mars is so close and bright, but with an eight inch telescope, 
which is much larger than my, my four inch that I'm using, you're going to still get lots of use out of that Mars filter probably up till Christmas. Um, yeah. And I think that would be my recommendation. Maybe with the, with the detail uh, unseen, and I think for sure, 100% an eight-inch daub can see detailed views on Mars. Was did you ever look at Mars through an eight-inch daub? Well, yeah, the uh, the O4 opposition. Or okay, I think it was the O4 when it. You know, that's the closest it's ever been. Um, I had looked at Mars. I. This is a long time ago, right? This is 16 years ago, and mm-hmm. uh, this this actually leads me to one of my next points too. I don't think I, like my expectations of what I could see, I think were maybe greater than what I, you know, than what's possible through a telescope. You know, I think Mm -hmm. I was expecting some contours and topography and and things of that nature. And, you know, the way you and I talk, you know, people might also think that, but I, I, there's something to be said about like observing experience and being able to see the detail. Uh, It sounds Mm -hmm. probably a little ridiculous, but there's, there's a lot to it. And like when I had my eight inch, I remember being able to see the caps, but the caps then were much larger than they are now. Like it's that so Southern small. cap. Yeah. yeah. That Southern cap right now is it's like, tiny. it's so tiny, but it is really bright. You, you know, if you look on the Southern part of Mars, you'll see this dot. And I guess, you know, through a Newtonian, I guess it would appear to be the Northern, right? Cause it's mm-hmm. That's left, right. right it's reversed, upside yeah. down. Everything's reversed. Yep. So on yep. the Newtonian, you'd be looking at the top there. You'll just see like a small dot that's white um, mm-hmm. and that's it. Now, my wife um, says it looks like a pimple. Yeah. 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 I, just I this think, tiny little pimple. Yeah. Yeah. I think on our, one of our last episodes, I've commented that it's like a little freckle um, yeah. on the planet. So yeah. yeah, don't, don't expect to see like a, you know, a lot of like, detail like what you see in the photos probably what i would recommend is if you just do some online searches for like mars sketches try to find somebody that's sketching with a similar aperture to what you're observing with Mm -hmm. Um, and that'll give you a better idea of what you can see but yeah definitely you know get the filter make sure you're collimated um make sure you're not using too much magnification either uh because sometimes if you're using too yeah. much, you'll just wash out any potential for detail. And I think um, a good magnification would be about 200 power on an, on an eight inch. Cause that's giving you the uh, one millimeter exit people. So basically you're getting mm-hmm. one power for every millimeter of aperture, eight inches, roughly 200 millimeters of aperture. So I think a, a 200 power would be, and that you really, if it's decent, good conditions at all, you should be able to see something on, on Mars at 200 power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and if 200 is not working, just dial it back, you know, yeah. go to 150, yeah. go to 100, whatever your eyepieces you have, just yeah. start dialing it back. Um, I think that's probably, Oh, maybe one other thing is, um, you know, don't observe too early in the evening when it's near the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's too low in the sky, the, yeah. our atmosphere will wash out a lot of the details. So the higher yeah. in the sky, the better. Uh, where Chris and I live in uh, Saskatchewan, um, I'm observing at around 10.30 at night. So actually it was about 10 o'clock last night, but how high would Mars have been at that point? Like 30 or 40 degrees, I'm guessing? Yeah, probably about 30. I was getting up there, okay. but and and I'm not sure when this uh, email came in, but if it was some weeks ago, um, you know, at uh, 
at the end of August, beginning of September, you know, Mars was really too low at, at dusk, you know, so if you, if you went out, you're going to be fighting not only with uh, your telescope cooling down, but also it's too low. And then, uh, yeah, probably you wouldn't see anything at all with, uh, with those two things coming into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add to that to, uh, to get better views of Mars? Yeah, if somebody is seriously thinking about observing Mars and, and wondering what you can see or what's possible or like really specific stuff, there's a book. It's, uh, I think it's from 2012, written by Peter Grego, and it's called Mars and How to Observe It. Unfortunately, Peter Grego passed away a few years ago, but um, it's an excellent, excellent book that he's left us with. And uh, I'll tell you, you get a lot in that book. That book can probably replace almost all the books on Mars on my shelf, because not only does he go into the history of Mars, he goes into how you can observe it. Um, not necessarily um, going to say that every single book in in uh, that series is worth owning, but I think that Mars and How to Observe It by Peter Grago is a great book on the history and actually demonstrates what you can see and goes into detail on how to see it. So he, he accomplishes what that book sets out to do. There's a lot in there. Um, some of it can be pretty technical, but that's a book that's grown with me over, over the past seven or eight years that I've owned it. Hmm. Great recommendation. And that's yeah. one that you've mentioned before. It's on my list. I really just need to order it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can borrow mine if, if you want sometime, but yeah, I think you should own it. It's, I don't know how much it is. It's not really expensive considering like I said, you get both the history. It's very thick. It's like an inch thick. It's surprising. A lot of those books are, are pretty light. This one is not. He's giving you um, what you're paying for. You're, you're getting a lot of history. You're getting a lot of science. You're getting a lot of observations in there. And you're getting a lot of detail on how to make those observations yourself. So it, it's got it all. Has, I think it even has a section on how to do photos of it and such. So, uh, and what's it's the comp- name of that one more time? It's Mars and How to Observe It by Peter Grago. Yeah, I, I've got it always around here during this time. Uh, all right, next question. What can I do to improve the performance of a telescope, particularly my first telescope? Yeah, so this came in from, I think this one was Phil in the UK, actually. Um, he has a little Celestron uh, first scope, which we already referenced. Um so it's a, it's a pretty small uh, Dobsonian, like it's a little tabletop type of telescope. And there's a lot of things you can do to improve your first telescope. Um, now, maybe let's, let's just talk about maybe a Dobsonian and okay. maybe a refractor. Because I think, right. you know, some of them are, don't apply to the other. All right. And I'm um, sharing the refractor that I'm going to talk about once you do the Dobsonian first. Okay. Well, why don't I talk about the Dob? You it. talk about the refractor then. All right. Okay, so Dobsonians. Um, so one thing to look at is the focuser. Um, you know, and maybe this actually circles back to our previous question about how do I see more detail on Mars. Uh, focus is so important. And, you know, sometimes the stock focuser that comes with a telescope um, isn't adequate. Um, you know, the, the movement is just too coarse that it's difficult to get a real fine focus. So, you know, if you... Um, if you replace the stock focuser with a two speed focuser, so you'll have coarse focus and fine focus, that can be a big improvement. Um, collimation is critical on a Dobsonian. That, you, you have to do that to improve the performance every time you use it. 
um, which is the alignment of the two mirrors. Uh, what else? Oh, um, flocking it. So the inside of the tube um, usually is painted black. And it, you want it painted black because if you get light bouncing around inside the tube, that will really ruin your views. Now, you should give which, away fl flocking paper because I have yeah, that you have ton a, of <laughs> like 50% like of a, the world's supply, I think. We, we should like do a thing where we give away flocking paper. Yeah. So this, this flocking paper is basically like, like a black velvet with a sticky backing. Like you peel off the, you know, the whatever paper, and then it exposes a, a sticky substance and you line the inside of the Dobsonian tube with this stuff. And it's just like, it, it's anti-reflective. It just absorbs the light. And um, that can definitely improve performance. I did that to my uh, 12 inch that I owned many, many years ago. And it, it definitely improved contrast. Um, look for any other shiny parts. Like sometimes there'll be some bolts that come through that are shiny. Um, like the old Mead light bridges had a white ring around like the tube assemblies that was shiny. Do whatever you have to, to kind of dull those, like whether it's slapping some paint on or, or get creative, but you know, removing any of that stuff can definitely mm -hmm. uh, improve the view. Um, maybe a fan on the mirror to help with, um, you know, cooling it off. Mm -hmm. um, and then just the, I guess how clean your optics are. You shouldn't clean optics very often, but if they do get too dirty, they may need a cleaning. I'm not going to get into how you do that, but please, if you clean optics, Google it, look for how you do that properly. So you don't wreck them because you can cause damage. I've got a great document on this. We should, okay. we should do this as a separate thing. Yeah, maybe we will. Yep. And then one thing to prevent your optics from getting dirty is um, you put like a, like a rug down, like a camping mat on the ground. And then you put your Dobsonian on top of that because just walking around on the ground kind of kicks up some dust that gets into the mirror and, you know, over time yep. it kind of gunks up. So I think that's, that's all I have for Dobbs though. All right. Can you see my screen? I'm going to bring it up. I just have to <laughs> switch to zoom. There we go. So Got it. One, and can you see that telescope? I can. Good stuff. So one thing we've, we've talked a little bit about, we were talking with, or you were chatting with Phil about it, and I heard his voicemail. It was really cool about the, the stuff he's doing with his uh, 130. And I'm teaching an astronomy class right now, and I have 28 people in the class. I bet you half or more actually already own a telescope. And the majority of those individuals actually own um, inexpensive telescopes, which are sometimes, and I, I think sort of disparagingly referred to as trash telescopes. And in fact, the image that you have on your screen there, Shane, is such a telescope that the owner refers to lovingly as a, a trash telescope. And uh, I have her permission to, to use this photo and say who it's from. It's from Nicole uh, Laporte. And she's a very well-known uh, Quebec artist. And she sent an email to a list. I, I'd never chatted with her before, although I'd seen her paintings. I, as soon as I looked her up, I was like, I've seen her paintings. I, I've spent time in Quebec before and been to a lot of the art galleries and such. Um, anyway, so she sent this sketch, uh, really a painting of Mars. And, and it was so beautiful. And then I saw the note that it was made with a Tasco 60 millimeter which 
are ubiquitous, almost ubiquitously referred to as trash telescopes in the, in the amateur astronomy community. In fact, Terence Dickinson refers to them as trash telescopes and tries to steer people uh, away from them. But I think that's one of the few points of contention I have with, uh, with Terence Dickinson is otherwise excellent recommendations because you can modify these instruments to work really well. And that's what Nicole has done. And so she sent me this photo on the, it's sort of like the before and after. The before is the shot from Amazon, uh, which I believe is where she, she purchased the Tasco 402. And the Tasco, it's called a 6402. And the reason why it's called it, it's a 60 millimeter and they claim it can do 402 power. <laughs> that's pushing limits. <laughs> but she's operating that at 117 power, which I think is a, excellent lens then if, if she's able to use that kind of power on it. And, um, but to get that, uh, what she did is this. Um, so the telescope comes with small, inexpensive uh, 0.96 eyepieces, but you can use 1.25 inch eyepieces with this instrument. And so she's upgraded, I believe the eyepieces or is using 1.25 inch eyepieces, which are uh, typically better eyepieces, unless you're getting into some pretty custom stuff. Uh, typically, these are going to be better eyepieces. She upgraded the finder. And she also went and found the mount to, I think it's a, some sort of Japanese telescope that had like a wooden tripod and a, and a decent yoke mount. And she, uh, she has made it to this really beautiful vintage wooden tripod. And then, although... It looks stock. Do you see the, I'm going to see if I can zoom in. Can you see me zooming in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can actually see this eyepiece tray looks like it's stock, but if you actually look closer on the zoom in, um, this was a mirror and she's actually taken uh, an image of the moon and uh, recessed that into this old mirror um, frame. And then she's made that her eyepiece tray. Like, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> That's really neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So That's awesome. Yeah, so typically the lenses in these inexpensive refractors are very good. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with the lenses. To make a good astronomical refractor, it's not difficult. Um, and so typically these manufacturers have done a good job. It's just everything else. It's the, exactly. the tripod. What's that? Exactly. It's the tripod, the eyepieces, uh, right. the, finder. the finder, everything around the telescope itself is, is what makes these telescopes have a poor reputation. That's right. Uh, and the grease as well. Often they, the mm -hmm. focuser needs uh, to be re-greased or, or reset in, in some sort of way. And so she's gone through and done all that. And of course, now she has this um, it, it, very unique looking telescope. Um, although it's, you know, this is probably just a mass produced telescope, but she's made a lot of customizations. She put some slow motion controls in there too. Um, and, and just sort of made it, made it her own. The point with this though, that I want to make is that regardless of whether you're buying an inexpensive, and this is like a hundred dollar telescope or whether you're purchasing like even like a Takahashi, you're going to have to do some modifications. It doesn't matter. You need to develop these sort of skills. Now everybody's going to go off in a different direction and, you know, not everybody has the, the artistic skill Nicole has to, uh, to actually make it like basically the telescope is a, is a work of art. Um, you know, not everybody is, is going to have, uh, have that level of skill, but you're going to have to make things more stable. I've gone through making my hundred millimeter more stable this year, and that's taken some work and effort. 
Um, so it's those, those kind of things that, uh, that you need to do. So with our little refractor, getting it upgraded to 1.25 inch eyepieces, getting it on a wooden, more stable mount. I think you can actually buy aftermarket wooden legs for many of these telescopes and then uh, to, to get it on a, a slightly better mounting. So either to just, just remove it from the original mount, get some tube rings and properly mount it up or, or to, to get a, a vintage mount that maybe is, uh, is more stable. For sure. And, and really, if you can convert it to using the inch and a quarter eyepieces, uh, you can get a really good quality inch and a quarter diagonal. And then just some simple plossal eyepieces are fantastic. Uh, they're, they won't set you back uh, a lot of money and you really will have a fine, fine instrument to use for a long time. Here, I'm sharing now the image she did of uh, sinus arytum through yeah, that. That's incredible. Uh, that little, is, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, she really is an artist. Um, so yeah, cool, eh? Yeah, yeah, very impressive. So yeah, these, yeah. you know, these inexpensive telescopes are, are, have potential to be really good performers with a little bit of, um, you know, evolving it, so to speak, and uh, replacing some of the, uh, some of the frustrating components that the manufacturer adds really just to save money. But the good news yep. is the, the money, the money part, the, the optics are, are pretty decent in those little uh, telescopes. Yeah. Like you haven't, you've, you've spent money on something that has value and can work well. You just need to get it to, to that point. All right. And those, those might even be the best value in the hobby because if Probably. you look on used websites, you can often find those Tascos for like $25, you know? Yeah. And then you, you take that, you do your, your transformation of uh, the tripod and some of the other aspects you just talked yep. about and man, you have a good telescope. Yeah. At some point in the future, I want to do like a whole episode on, on upgrading. I've been doing some digging around on this. I'm going to do a class on it for my class and, uh, try to help some folks out. All right. Next question. I've heard of the Messier list. Are there others? There are many, many. Others. <laughs> um, so like there's some standard one or not standard, so but maybe more maybe, popular ones. Maybe we should start. I'm going to hop in here. Okay. What is the Messier list, Shane? So Charles Messier was a astronomer from hundreds of years ago. You'll you'll know the time frame. I, I don't know those details. Yeah, it's around 1800. He was there we go. So um, what he did is he, in those days, astronomers actually made money by discovering comets. Um, so a number of them, that was their thing. They would scan the sky looking for comets uh, to become famous and to generate some cash flow. So Messier was doing this. Um, now what Messier would do is when he saw, Chris is showing me a, a postcard or photo of where Messier, I think, observed. Um, so what Messier would do is he would take his uh, very kind of modest old telescope, scan the sky, and if he saw something fuzzy, he went, or he would plot it, and then he would go back to observe it a couple days later to see if it moved. If it moved, it was a comet. If it didn't move, it wasn't. Now, he, um, I think he ended up discovering like seven or eight comets. However, um, during that time, he documented some of the brightest deep sky objects in the sky. And uh, he's more famous for this Messier list of uh, nebulas, clusters, and uh, galaxies. Yeah. And if you're in France or in Paris to be specific, you can go to the Hotel de Cluny, see where he did the work and note that there's no 
or very little mention of Messi there, <laughs> which I did and was a little bit surprised at both. Um, but yeah, he he observed from from this turret. The turret is there. The observatory is no longer. They don't seem very uh, impressed at the modifications that he made to this uh, long historic establishment. <laughs> so I had fun. So yeah, the, the Messier list is probably one of the most popular lists uh, in astronomy because it is a lot of the brightest objects. Um, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada has a number of observing programs. One of them is the Messier list. And, you know, mm. if you document all of your observations, you can send them into uh, the society. They'll validate them and then give you a certificate and a pin, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, now, other lists, there's the finest NGC is another popular one. There's the Herschel 400. Um, there's, there's really no end to the amount of lists out there. It's mm -hmm. just a matter of uh, searching for them. And what I usually recommend is, um, and I've done this myself, is like, I'll, I'll just go into Google and I'll search for like Nevada astronomy clubs. Just pick a random place in the world. Uh, you'll get a list of astronomy clubs. And if you go to their websites, they often will have a number of their observing programs or certificate or uh, sorry, observing lists published. Um, so then you can look at it to see if it interests you and away you go. Um, some planetarium software will even generate lists for you. Like you can put in like your aperture and what you want to look at and it'll just spit out objects for you. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different ways to uh, approach the whole list thing. All right, next question. I understand that planets are small, so need so I need more magnification. But other than the moon, how large are these other things I can see? I can't grasp how large or small a galaxy like the Andromeda is in the sky uh, compared to, say, Mars. Or how big in degrees are some of the messy objects? Uh, for example, how many moon widths is this or that? And what field of view is suitable for seeing messy objects? Yeah, good, really good question. And um, difficult to provide like a standard answer uh, that can be applied to all telescopes. So part of this is definitely telescope dependent uh, because all telescopes will yield different fields of view. And, um, you know, that depending on the object you're looking at, um, you may need a really wide field. Um, but maybe to, to circle back to the beginning of that is in terms of like, how do I know how big something is in relation to say the moon? Um, so the moon is a, a half a degree. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at any, well, probably not any, but most star or lists of objects will list the size of the object. And that's often listed in arc minutes or arc seconds. And using that uh, scale of measurement, you can begin to develop an idea or understanding of how large the object is that you're looking at. Um, but even that is a little bit dependent on how much light pollution is in the sky, um, how, how big your telescope is to pull in all of the light. Um, so there's a little bit of variability there, but what, what are your thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I was going to say the, the exact same as you. I mean, the, the moon is about half a degree. So when you, when you look at Andromeda, it's about four degrees. So you're looking at uh, eight moon widths. Um, most of the Messier objects, though, because Messier was using a telescope um, that had eyepieces that were almost having as small a field of view as Shane's eyepieces. <laughs> they were very small fields of view, like 40 degrees or so, orthoscopic, as, as they say, like looking through a soda straw. 
Um, so many of the objects that that he discovered or was or was uh, or was cataloging because he he only discovered about I think half the objects on his list of 110. Uh, they're pretty small, so uh, you know really you don't need any kind of fancy wide field object or eyepieces to look at these objects uh, at all. So that that's kind of like the good news. You don't need any any kind of remarkable or special instrument in any way whatsoever. Really, and there's observers who have used just a 60 millimeter telescope to see them all. I've seen all the Messies and a pair of binoculars from super, super dark sites. Um, so there's that. Yeah, but I, I think that covers it well. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. I think we are at time. You know, we have to keep these less than about an hour because once we get more than an hour, these files become unwieldy, Shane. Well, we're, at we're at 56 minutes, so we should wrap up. <laughs> there we go. That's a good spot to end then. How can people stay in touch with us? You can find us on Twitter. Actual, uh, we are at Actual Astronomy. Uh, you can leave feedback on any of the podcast apps or email us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Yeah, well, that sounds good, Shane. Um, it would be great if people did stay in touch with us and then try to uh, ask us questions and we can provide answers maybe in another future mailbag. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. And thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>